Uh, I've been thinking about it all week, and I hope this will help to bring some clarity to something. But I have I pushed pretty hard on on some things last week, which I think is good. And I, but I wanted to bring maybe a little balance to some things I said. I, I talked about humility, and that humility and agnosticism are not one and the same thing. And uh, Paige brought that up to me, and we talked about it to stand and. Uh, and I, I want to clarify that a little bit by saying the context within which I'm thinking when I say something like that is kind of my background with dealing with some of my extended family or my community church setting or even my day-to-day here is that most of the resistance and battles I fight in my life have to do with people not wanting to define terms, not wanting to be clear. But And so that that statement is true. Humility and agnosticism are not the same thing. But there is, as Stan brought up to me, an element where there's a lot we don't know and that we need to be willing to admit that. That's another, uh, the other side of humility. And I think, you know, as I said, as we kind of want to have a robust, full understanding of, of doctrine, and we should, we should be willing to say this is the way forward, I think that obligation also lies on, say, our Baptist brethren or, or other congregations. It's not as though we have a corner on the market of truth. Um, and my concern is that, that in these other spheres and congregations, there's almost a willingness to say, this is how it is. We're all divided and, and we don't know. And so we're just going to leave it at that. And that's a concern to me. So I, I don't know if that helps bring balance to what I said, but I had been thinking about it all week, and so I thought I'd just bring it up, and, and I hope that that helps a little bit um, for what it's worth. So with that said, uh, let's pray over the Word, and then we'll get into our text for, for today. Uh, our God, we thank You for Your Word, and we pray that as we come to it this morning, You would quicken our minds and our hearts by Your Spirit, that by Your Word You would tune our hearts to sing Your praises in response to, to Your perfect truth, and uh, as we, we consider the, this morning the power of the enemy that we face, uh, we confess our own weakness and we rest in the promise that, that for we who are born of God, the evil one cannot touch us. And so I pray that uh, the proclamation of your word would serve as yet another means to, to your protection of your people this morning and that you would indeed deliver us from the evil one. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So our text, 1 Peter 5, 8-11, if you'd stand as we read the Word of God. First Peter 5, 8-11 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. 
So the hymn that we will sing after the sermon, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Uh, The first verse ends with these words, On earth is not his equal. Who is he talking about? Satan. He's talking about Satan. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. So if you're a worship leader, never sing just the first verse of A Mighty Fortress. (laughs) That's an interesting admission from from one of the great hymns of the faith, from one of the great Reformed heroes, Martin Luther. Uh, And we sing in it that on earth there's no match for Satan. I don't know about you. I, I I don't think of Satan in that way. Oftentimes, it's it's interesting. Uh, Caleb was talking about Lord of the Rings. It's coincidental. I have some thoughts that kind of stem from that. I think more about uh, Satan, more more in terms of like Lord Sauron in Mordor. You know, this mounting evil force that's far off and wanting to take over the whole world. And he's this sort of scary fictional character in a fanciful story. Um, and he doesn't really have impact on my life in the here and now. And, and if we do kind of occupy the same reality, he's far off in Mordor, and I'm over here and, and lying around and, and comfortable the Shire, you know. Uh, uh, it's easy going where I'm at, and he's far off and scary over there. Um, in addition, I've read the book, and I know how it ends, and so I feel pretty safe, and, and so so the devil ends up being really this sort of red suit and tail with a pitchfork two and a half inches tall on my shoulder, encouraging me to eat that third piece of cake, that's about it, you know? But the truth is that the, the devil is a very real presence and a present enemy in our lives, and he is indeed extremely powerful. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. And it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So in our text today, Peter urges us to be on the alert because he's not some far off evil force, nor is he a little man with a pitchfork. He's a roaring lion pacing back and forth looking for someone to devour. And in this text, Peter gives us instructions for resisting this great Roaring Lion. Uh, So let's begin in in verse uh, 8 with this description of the devil as this great lion. He says, Being sober-minded, or be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He says, Your adversary, the devil. Some have suggested that this is uh, Nero, or the Roman government. Um, you know, Nero hated Christians, and he had this horrible distaste for them. He, he did terrible things to them. And depending on the dating of First Peter, that could be a reasonable suggestion. Um, and surely Satan has his hand in any official Roman persecution of Christians. He was surely involved in that. But I don't think it's a highly likely suggestion. Um, Nero first of all, didn't have that we know of. There's no record of a program of persecution carried out in that region at that time, um, at least formally. And secondly, Peter also says the devil. He calls him the devil. Now, he could be just calling Nero names, (laughs) that devil. Um, But he seems to be talking about this specific person, the devil. 
And so I, I take him to mean the devil as in Satan, as our enemy, our adversary. Another suggestion, however, is that Peter's really talking more about some sort of internal struggle with sin within people. Uh, not really this person, but... And, and, of course, there's an element of truth there, too. The devil does, in some form or another, have his hands in our temptation and in our, our sin. But I don't think that's Peter's point. He, he's not merely using figurative language to talk about Christian holiness. He's talking in personal terms about this person, the devil, who's prowling around looking for someone to devour. And there's no indication to me that he's speaking figuratively. So I bring these couple of interpretations up because they both seem to me to be kind of this evasion of the uncomfortable truth that we have this very real, very scary foe named Satan. You know, part of the reason we're uncomfortable with this is there's a lot we don't understand about the spiritual warfare that goes on behind the scenes that's veiled from us and we don't like what we can't see. Another reason we might be uncomfortable with this is just We'd rather not think about this very powerful creature who wants to eat us for breakfast. That's uncomfortable. But if we're going to confront reality, we have to confront the real existence of a powerful and deeply depraved enemy. Peter calls our adversary. Now that word adversary could just mean opponent, like someone you fight against. Or more often it's used as the opposing side in a courtroom. This is the adversary, which actually kind of goes hand in hand with the meaning of the, the word, the name devil or diabolos. It, it means one who slanders, one who falsely accuses. Uh, so the devil then is that prosecutor, our accuser in the courtroom of God. And we read in Revelation 12, uh, John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power... And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. So that's Satan's role. He is our accuser in the courtroom of God. Not only is he our accuser, but he's said to devour. So how does Satan devour people? It's an interesting question. I don't think we can exhaust it today, but I did kind of a quick survey of the New Testament to see what the devil is capable of, what are some of his tactics in attacking Christians, attacking the saints. So I have this list. It's not exhaustive, but he, for one thing, plants bad seed among the good seed. We have that in Jesus' parable. Uh, similarly, he'll take the seed of the word and take it away from the hearers of the word. Uh, he's also called a murderer and a liar and the father of murderers and liars. And somehow it seems in his interaction with Judas, he has some sort of ability. And I don't know if this is descriptive or prescriptive or, or what, but with Judas, he put something in the heart of Judas, it says. So he seems to have something, at least maybe with those who are his children, to put things in the hearts of people. Uh, he's also able to physically afflict people, as we see in Job. His sons, the sons of the devil, as they're called, make crooked the straight paths of the Lord, Acts 13 says. He also takes advantage of the opportunities of anger. We read about in, in Ephesians 4, when we're angry, he takes opportunity to leverage that against us. 
First Timothy, Second Timothy, talk about how he snares people. Specifically, he snares, lays snares for leaders in the church. Uh, Hebrews two says he holds the power of death. First uh, John calls him the father of sinners. He's able, as we read in Revelation two, to in some way he says he throws the saints in prison, so he's somehow involved with that whole affair. And he call, Revelation 12 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. So there's a lot that the devil can do, and, and we maybe, like the Trinity, there's a lot of mystery to that, but there's a lot that he can do and does do, and the chief of which is he wants to deceive, incite doubt, and undermine our faith. From the very beginning, his primary tactic was, did God actually say, don't eat the forbidden fruit. Don't eat the fruit of the tree in the garden. Did God actually say? So I think we can say for sure what it does not mean for Satan to devour a saint. What it does not mean is he can't take a regenerate person and, and just haul them off to hell. We're assured too many times in Scripture, God will keep those who are His. That's a promise we have. But we can say for sure a few things the devil would seek to undermine and attack at every chance he has. He would undermine the Word of God. He hates the Word of God. He would deceive and take it away from us. He would also plant false converts and wolves among the church and thus undermine the church and her unity and the proclamation of the truth. And he would undermine our faith. He would accuse us before God of all of our sins and he would convince us that we're guilty before God even though we stand clean in him in Christ. I I read somewhere this week and they put it so much more eloquently and I couldn't find it again, but basically the the devil plays the role of a friend and a tempter urging us to sin until we do sin and then he flips and he's all of a sudden the accuser of, of us before God. Satan hates the truth. The devil hates the church. He hates our faith. And so he will do what he can to devour them, to see that these things do not advance. They do not grow in the world. And that is why Peter says we have to be alert. We have to be on our guard because Satan is crafty. He would destroy the church in an instant if he if he could. And God uses in His providence the vigilance of, of the true saints in the church. We talked about this with elders who have to keep an eye out for the wolves among the sheep. God uses the saints to protect His people, which is why He begins this section with these two exhortations. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Which Karen Jobs suggests those two rapid succession exhortations kind of form a single thought, which is just be alert, be vigilant. And I think she's right in saying that, but each command kind of brings its own nuance to the to the idea. Uh, this this word, be sober-minded, at its most basic is, is just, I mean, it's used in reference to alcohol. Don't be drunk. Be sober. But figuratively, uh, Thayer's lexicon says, it is to be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate, dispassionate, and circumspect. The people are naturally quick to become intoxicated of mind, to be consumed by the cares and pleasures of the world, distracted and to just kind of get all in a huff about things. 
And this is the third time that we've seen this term used in the letter. First uh, Peter one thirteen. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully on the grace. First uh, Peter four seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And then here again, be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around. So this this idea of being sober-minded is important to Peter. This is the third time he's used it. And his concern is that Christians under pressure, in suffering, maintain our cool. You know, the Christian on the Colosseum floor, if he's to have any hope of kind of standing firm in the face of that that bloody, chopped, roaring lion pacing back and forth, seeking somebody to, to, to eat, that guy cannot lose his cool. He can't freak out. He's got to keep it together. Peter emphasizes this thought throughout the letter. He also says here, be watchful. Also, it can mean stay awake. Jesus said to the disciples using this word, stay awake for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. He also says uh, to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. It's the same verbs or verb. (coughs) So the question is, how can we as Christians expect to stand firm in the presence of a roaring lion if we're sleeping, if we're sleeping, if we're not being watchful. First Thessalonians five, four through eleven. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Those are the same two verbs. Keep awake, be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet and hope of salvation. Those things in in Ephesians, Paul says, extinguished all the flaming darts of the evil one. So believers have this responsibility as children of the light to be vigilant, to be alert, to be sober, to be watchful. I find Hebrews 5.14 practically helpful in, in instruction on vigilance. He says, But the solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So that, that takes a lot of work to, to be discerning, to distinguish good from evil. It takes a lot of, it's interesting, he says practice. You have to practice. You have to be trained to do this. Our adversary is, again, exceedingly crafty. So we have to watch carefully. We have to be on the alert, learning by constant practice to distinguish the good from the evil. So then the first exhortation which Peter gives us in in contending with this adversary is to be alert. The second one here is to resist him in verse 9. Resist. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So resist him, he says. Stand against him, oppose him, withstand him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James says. 
Peter insists you don't just lay down when the lion comes. You fight. You resist the lion. But kind of the big question in my mind is how. We just said on earth is not his equal. I'm an inferior creature to him. How am I supposed to resist him? Peter here gives us the manner and the means in which we resist him. And he first says, resist him firm in your faith, or literally firm in the faith. Uh, So it's interesting what Luther says next after admitting no one on earth is equal to this ancient foe. The next verse he says, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, which means Lord of hosts or Lord of armies, is his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. So that's it right there to me. That's standing firm in the faith. That's our statement of faith. That confession right there is our firmness. Firmness of faith is not a... a, a resoluteness welling up from within us. It's a supreme confidence that God will in this. Firmness of faith in the knowledge that the right man, Christ Jesus, has in effect already ended this. 1 John 3.8 says that the very reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. And this he did, in effect, on the cross, though we wait for the final consolation in his second coming. But in the meantime, we do not lose heart, because firmness of faith believes unflinchingly that he will come back to the end, and Satan and his forces will be destroyed once and for all. So it's interesting that the apostles in the apostolic band, they seem very interested in the firmness of people's faith, the firmness of of belief. Uh, a couple examples here. They, um, in Colossians four, we in Colossians we read about Epaphras, who is this missionary or pastor to the Colossae, to Colossae, and he brought the gospel to these people. And Paul tells them toward the end of the letter, who Epaphras is now with Paul, and he says of Epaphras, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. This is what he wants for them, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. In the same book, Paul, in in chapter 2, says, Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul does not believe in wavering Christians. I, I have the picture of those goofy things in the car lot that, you know. <laughs> that's not Paul's picture of a Christian. He believes in, in oak tree Christians. Probably the most classic text on this establishment of being firm in the faith is Ephesians 4. So I'm going to read that for you, 11 through 16, if you want to follow. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves or carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by its every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So it's interesting to me that Paul's emphasis is, is when you talk about the devil, a lot of times it's, it's kind of, you know, this foe is attacking you, and in prosperity circles, this foe is attacking your finances or your health, and it's like, I'm going to bind him, right? That's his prayers. I'm going to bind, no, you're not going to bind him. But Paul's concern is with the doctrine that the, the church is holding to in unity, that firmness of faith results in not being carried away by every wind of doctrine. That is what firmness of faith looks like. And so if we want to resist the devil, these are the types of texts and ideas we have to turn to. Our firmness, our rootedness in the faith is that which enables us to hold fast in those moments when we kind of feel the lion's steamy breath on our back of our necks. It's not the binding of Satan or his demons. It's not kind of burying our head in the sand and and wishing he would go away. And it's not by working hard to become better people. It's by the vital establishment of our faith in Christ, the building up of the body of the church. It is the attainment of that that unity of, of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And then the result is that we're not tossed by waves or crafty deceit of human people. So it is this firmness of faith that enables us to stand and to resist the devil. And he goes on and and he shows us that this firmness is rooted in knowledge. He says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Um, So really there's two things here which the Christian knows, allowing him to stand firm in the faith, in the face of a mighty foe. And the first one is that he knows that these same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood. There's the sharing of the brotherhood. Really, there's kind of a positive and a negative to this, and the, the negative is far outweighed by the positive in chapter or verse 10. But positively, as we suffer and share in this suffering with our brotherhood, we know that we are in the family of God because we have these shared experiences, which should give us a great deal of assurance. Uh, one of the things that often happens when my brother and sister and I get together is my dad has a lot of these sayings, dadisms, you know, and they're kind of silly and, and we kind of tease them about them and we like to just kind of bring them up and list them and laugh about them a little bit and then realize we have also adopted at least half of them. <laughs> My brother always says, you are dad. <laughs> but it's interesting as we get together and do this that one of the things that identifies us as children of the same father is a common shared experience of our father. And while it may be less enjoyable than, than recounting dadisms, this suffering is also a common experience among brethren of our Father. As we've been reminded throughout the book, it's a part of the will of our Father that His children suffer because it refines our faith. 
So thus Peter names his, his audience members here brother, the brotherhood, members of the brotherhood. And as members of the brotherhood, we share that same father. Which is a strange thing about Christian suffering, but it, it confirms rather than warns us of danger or something. You know, usually pain signals, you know, you're doing something dumb. You, you shouldn't grab the handle of the cast iron skillet you pulled out three minutes ago. That's what pain does. But Christian pain and Christian suffering is the opposite. It confirms that we are indeed in the family of faith. It, it gives us insur- assurance. And thus we're not shaken when the world hates us and maligns us. I think everyone has a fear of being left out, of being an outcast in society, of being maligned, of being left out in the cold, which causes many people to buckle under the the pressure of Christian suffering. But we as Christians remain unmoved because rather than that causing us to feel alone or, or outside of something, it causes us to feel a part of something, to know we are a part of something. It confirms our brotherhood and our stake in our Father's family. So the world over and through history as well, we we share this unbreakable bond of brotherhood. And then I think, you know, how shallow that makes that wound of being ostracized. It it doesn't mean a whole lot anymore after that. So the second thing here which Christians know, allowing us to stand firm in the faith, is our future glory. Our future glory. So the first is our shared brotherhood. The second is our future glory. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So that eternal weight of glory far outweighs the temporary suffering. That's an amazing contrast. And really this verse is worthy of its own sermon, I realized, but that will be another day, maybe. But he begins, he call, he says, he calls God the God of all grace. That's an amazing descriptor, the God of all grace. So you think God is abundantly gracious. You could say that, but I think there's more to it than that. We could say also that all grace is God's grace. Every bit of grace that is dispensed to men flows from the divine hand. And all that is grace is God's grace. Also, Calvin points out beautifully, he says, one grace is connected with another so that they might hope in the future for the addition of those graces which in, in which they were hitherto wanting. So in other words, all the grace that he's given us so far is connected to the grace that we'll get in the future it's is you know the future graces are as much a done deal as the past graces we've experienced paul says in philippians i'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ so this right here is the very assurance we are given in this passage <clears throat> suffering can't do damage to our confidence in god's faithfulness because we, on the, at first we look back upon our calling, our, our past calling in Christ. And in the present we now know that He has called us to an eternal glory. And we know in the future that we can be confident that He will establish the battered Christian in the end. And so we have this eternal glory. 
We have been called to eternal glory, he says. That's what he calls it, eternal glory. That, that to me, is extraordinary. This temporary suffering of the Christian, we have to remember the temporary nature of it may be a lifelong suffering. It may even be death. But as Luther says in uh, the hymn, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So the time on this earth is fleeting and the grace of God is eternal. It's not fleeting. But I think it is the fleeting which the devil tempts us with and distracts us with. He holds no eternal promise to us. Satan is the God of immediate gratification. And his threats are likewise temporal. You know, he can destroy our home, perhaps, or our family, or our reputation in an attempt to shipwreck our faith. But he can't touch our eternal inheritance. He wants us to descend with him to his eternal home. And he does deceive many to that end. But to we who are elect and called to an eternal inheritance in Christ, he can't destroy us in that way. He can't accomplish that mission. And finally, God, he says, God will in the last day restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish his people. So we who are despised in this world will stand among the sheep on the right hand of the judge, while all those who despise us will join the devil's goats on the left. We'll be vindicated. We who we, we will be brought near while we are now cast off. We who were scattered will stand united before the throne of God. We who were weak and despised in the world will be given strength and a crown of glory. And we who were an obscure clan, a remnant spread across the globe, will be established as the people of God. And all of this will be done because we are called, and he says, in Christ. It's all because we are called in Christ. By no merit of my own I await my eternal home. By another's life and death I enter my eternal rest. It's only by our union with Christ that we may claim any of these blessings of Christ. So it's ultimately He, it is ultimately Christ, our King, who conquers Satan. Just how He finishes with this amazing confession to her blessing. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Westminster Confession or uh, the Shorter Catechism question 26 asks how does Christ execute the office of a king? The answer is Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to Himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. So, the real king reigns. To him belongs eternal dominion. The devil possesses this little title of prince of the power of the air for a short time. But our allegiance belongs to the only king of the universe who will in his time destroy the devil forever. And even now, as the, the catechism states, he restrains him, he subdues him, he has a leash on him. That roaring lion is little more than a lapdog to the king on his throne. Conclude with Luther. And through this and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, 
we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Amen. Praise God. Well, I threw a curveball at Michael last night to ask if we could sing. We sang it last week, but I just quoted it too many 